I'm going to ask you to turn with me again to Malachi chapter 3 this morning, or look up behind me here, uh, as we affix our attention again on verses 7 through 12. And we return this morning to the testimony of Malachi as inspired by God the Holy Spirit and presented for us and for the use of the church really in every generation. And we recognize that there's a problem. And that's why Malachi, the book of Malachi, is being written, because there is a problem. A series of issues have been raised by the Lord through his prophet, and we've come to the matter of Israel's support of the temple and the work of the priests and of others. And the question of the failure to give the tithes and offer the offerings called for by the Lord. These people, prior to being carried off to Babylon, lavished all sorts of gifts and wealth upon their idols. According to Ezekiel, they took their garments, the most beautiful and the most expensive ones, and dressed their idols in those garments. They took their precious jewels, they took their gold and their silver, which God had given them, and gave them over to those images. They presented them with sumptuous gifts of grain and meat. Ezekiel says they even sacrificed their sons and daughters to them. The point being that there was nothing too valuable to be withheld from the idols that the people worshipped prior to their going into captivity. Now, after the captivity, a great deal of this had been given up. But now that they were reformed, they were giving to the true Lord nothing. They had repented of only half their sin, recognizing the commission on the one side of having given to idols, but not the omission on the other side, of the offense having withheld from the true and living God. Now the Lord presents this matter in the form of a conversation. And so in Matthew chapter 3, and verse 7 we read, and this is the Lord speaking to them, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? But you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now we understand this conversation isn't going on literally between them. It is the way the Lord is presenting himself to them and the way that they're responding in their hearts. And we made two observations regarding this, uh, these, um, this conversation. And I just, there are actually a lot of other things we said, but I just want to highlight these two in review. First of all was the call to repentance that followed it. Um, it's the call to confession of sin on their part. And then repentance. And then the promise from God that if they do that, if they turn to him, that he will turn to them with loving acceptance. And the whole message of repentance there 
harmonizes with what we read in 1 John chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that's really what these people were doing. They were saying they had no sin. And the Lord saying, you're deceiving yourself. You do have sin. And the truth isn't in you. Then in verse 9 of 1 John chapter 1, John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what he's inviting them to do. Confess the sin, repent of it, and then turn to me and I will turn to you. I will forgive you your sins. Then in verse 10, John goes on to say, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's a sinful pridefulness in men and women that keeps them from being willing to confess their sins and their secret love for them. It keeps them from abandoning them the way that they should and repenting of them. And nothing demonstrates how true that is like this sin, or rather I should say this scene, where God brings it forward and he says, you've robbed me. And they say, how have we robbed you? And he makes it clear that you've robbed me in tithes and contributions. And it's evident. But they put up this resistance out of their pride. And that's the second thing to note here. Rather than admitting what an all-knowing God has made known to them, they demand a charge be brought. And then, when it is, they demand evidence. And God, as we saw last week, wastes no time in providing the charge and the evidence. He says, you are God robbers. And the proof is in the fact that you are not tithing or offering the free will offerings that I have both commanded and encouraged from you as my covenant people. It's quite clear. In the book of Job, the Lord asks this, and this is in Job chapter 40 and verses 8 through 14. It is the Lord speaking. He says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like, like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So the way it's put here in Job is the Lord is saying, are you making yourself righteous so that you can condemn me? And isn't that what they're doing when the Lord says, will you rob God? And they say, wait a minute, how have we robbed you? They're saying, you've misjudged. You don't, you don't have things clear. You, you, Lord, have misjudged. We have judged ourselves and found ourselves pure. Where's the evidence of this claim that you make? And the Lord says, you act that way and to justify yourselves, and I'll accept it when you can prove to me that you can save yourself. 
And of course, they have no hope of doing that. In this case, he makes it clear that he's willing to meet their needs, but that they were refusing to meet the needs of his house and of his work. And how clear was all of that? Well, here's one example out of many. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 16 through 17. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord, what? Empty-handed. Is that unclear? Is there something about that that's nebulous? We're not exactly sure what the Lord's saying here. You shall appear before me three times a year, and you don't come empty-handed. It's pretty clear. Verse 17, every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So the Lord doesn't just say, don't come empty-handed. He says, come as the Lord has blessed you and bring something with you to these times. And this is what they weren't doing. This led my grandfather, as I've mentioned often, to teach me from my youngest years never to come to the Lord's house for worship without something to give. He would... uh, I'd come into his Sunday school class, and he'd call me over, and he'd say, has your dad given you anything for offering this morning? And if I said no, he would reach in his pocket and give me something and say, don't ever come to the house of the Lord without something to give. And I believe he was basing it on the heart and the spirit of this command from Deuteronomy. But look at verse 9 now. In verse 9, the Lord reveals something to the people that they hadn't seemed to realize at the time. He says in verse 9, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. By robbing God of his rightful due, they'd placed themselves outside of the way of blessing, beloved. This is the way you, I think, really should begin to look at this idea of their being cursed. There are only two alternatives. One is either enjoying the blessing of the Lord, or they are under the curse. Uh, They're outside of that blessing, and therefore under the curse. The nature of that curse was established in the beginning. When Adam sinned, we go back to Genesis 3 and verse 17, we read there, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, we could trace this matter through the scriptures, and we just don't have time to do that this morning in this context, but we could see where Solomon speaks of how riches can take wings like an eagle and fly away and be gone. 
how that when a man or a woman's earthly riches grow without the blessing of God, so the burdens grow and so the worries grow. As they get more, they're more concerned for what they have, and they're overburdened with. This is without the blessing of God, if they just accumulate. Or how one labors to accumulate wealth only to see it squandered away by his or her children. It was a common saying in the days when uh, great wealth was to be found uh, in, in our country, what was called new wealth. So it took one generation to gather the wealth one generation to manage it, and the third generation to lose it. There are all sorts of ways that wealth and prosperity, without the blessing of the Lord, can prove only to be a curse. We read in the days of Nehemiah this. This is in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. They've just come back from that captivity, and now they're trying to live their lives and get back to normal. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 5, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our house to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as as are their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I kind of get the picture of what's happening here. They come back from being exiled, and they come back into possession of their lands, but even though they have the land, they can't afford to keep it. There's a famine in the land, the the, the famine is pinching everyone, and they can't keep their land. So they have a, a parcel of land, but they have to mortgage it just so they can eat. And they can't use it in a way that will enrich them. Now, In this case here in Malachi, the people have been allowed to fall prey to a drought and a famine because of their sinful disregard of the Lord and his word. They have fallen outside of his blessing and back under the curse because of their disobedience. They had pinched on God's side and he had paid them home in the same kind. They thought in the famine to have kept the more to themselves, and they had the less for keeping from him that which was his, John Trapp says. It is, on the other hand, the blessing of the Lord that makes one truly rich. We know that from Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. With that blessing that comes with him and being under his hand, the, the riches may increase, but there's no sorrow that increases with it because the Lord is with you in it and blessing you. And you notice that this is a problem amongst the whole nation. The rich and the poor, the high-born and the low-born, they all pinched God, as Stock puts it. So they all found themselves pinched. 
The situation is described by the prophet Haggai in this way. And this is Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full, your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies ruins, lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So they were pouring everything they had into their own homes, into their own livelihood. They were neglecting the house of God financially. And the result was that it was like putting money into a bag with holes in it. it their, their livelihood was a, a money pit in which they would continually trying to be catching up and never able to accomplish anything. We'll come back to that here in, in just a moment. Now what follows this revelation that they are under a curse because of their willful disobedience is what the Lord promises upon their acknowledgement of their sin, their repentance, and their subsequent obedience. And that's in verses 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now this promise that you see here can only lead to a name it and claim it mentality or a wealth and prosperity gospel if one is of a covetous or avaricious mind. That spirit has to be present to allow such a blatant misreading of what is being said. This is not the Lord saying, you make a big gift to Reverend Fisher and I'll put a Cadillac in your driveway. It's not what's being said here. And someone who says that is misrepresenting, and if they use this passage to try to establish that, they are misrepresenting what is being said here. If you look at it carefully, plainly stated, what the Lord your God is saying here is this. Give me what is mine by right and glorify me And see if I won't give you more of what is mine so that you will bring more of what is mine to me and glorify me more. It's not what he's going to do for you. It's what he's doing to glorify himself. That's the emphasis here. 
If one reads this testimony and thinks it's about making him or her rich, he or she has completely missed the point. This isn't about making people wealthy or prosperous, beloved. It's about obeying and honoring God by acknowledging that all things come from him. It's about acknowledging that Consequently, he has a right to expect that all his people, but especially his own people, will give him what is his own and recognize that it's sinful and robbery to do otherwise. Stop doing it and move from the position of being under the curse of a world in rebellion to being under the blessing of the Lord by willing obedience. So you want to get that spirit of it in your mind. You give me more of what is mine, and I will give you more so you can give me back more of what is mine for my glory. That's what's being said here. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, he says, that there may be food in my house. And notice where this begins. Bring me out of mine what I require. So you don't want to get the idea that this is the Lord saying, bring me out of yours what I demand. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, bring out of mine that I've given to you what I require. And you'll notice, again, as we said last week, this is to be done not with an eye on the treasury, but with an eye on their own hearts and what was right before the Lord. Bring the penny on the dime, the dime on the dollar, the dollar on the ten, the ten on the hundred. Bring it all, the Lord says. No man or woman ought to look at a situation and take it upon him or herself to say, that's enough for the Lord's work. And why? Why shouldn't they do that? Because no one knows what the Lord will do until he intends to do it. How do we know what the Lord intends to do with us until we see what he does? And if we look and say, well, there's enough to do everything that we should do, we look at the treasury and we view it that way, we're actually saying, well, it's all got to be within the confines of what we've imagined instead of what the Lord may use us to do. And you see this carried out beautifully in the New Testament where we read of churches not giving out of their wealth, but giving out of their poverty to help other churches to grow and to be strengthened, to be able to carry on the ministry of the word. And the Lord then blessing that church in his poverty for having given to the strength and the blessing of others. Because you can't tell what the Lord is going to do or how he's going to work. As much as we try, we're not good visionaries when it comes to God and his purposes. We are naturally inclined to draw in. To think, well, maybe God could do this. Maybe. But he's never going to do that. That's just not going to happen. And on what are we basing that conclusion on our own experience? We think, well, we've got this much, so, and we know what we can do, so knowing what we can do, 
that's all God can do, and he can't do more. And those who have been able to do great things for the Lord haven't looked at the work of the Lord in that way. They've looked at it in the way that the Lord can do all his holy will. In Psalm 40, verse 5, it says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Secondly, this is not to be a conditional matter as if one is to calculate all of his or her expenses and then after that determine if there's anything extra of what the Lord has given of his own to give back an acknowledgement of that fact. That's not what's going on here. It's not what the Lord is calling for here. What was to be given to the Lord was to be considered as the first of their necessary expenses, even before their daily bread. That first portion is holy to the Lord. And to keep what was holy to the Lord for themselves was wicked. And that's why they were under the curse. The seriousness of this is illustrated in the portion of scripture that Tyler read a few moments ago regarding Ananias and Sapphira. And do you see the logic here, beloved? If I'm praying that the Lord would give me my daily bread, and he does, with the provision that I freely acknowledge that he's done so by returning a portion of it in tithes and offerings, to not do so is to betray not only a spirit of ingratitude, but a lack of faith and a questionable spirit in prayer. If I say, Lord, give me my daily bread, he gives it, and I'm supposed to return a portion of that to him, and I don't do that, then am I really acknowledging that he did hear and answer my prayer? I'm saying, I got this somehow else. I got this some other way for myself. I did this by my work. I did this by my uh, cleverness. I did this myself. And so I get to keep it all, and maybe I'll share some with the Lord. That's different than saying, Lord, I can't do anything. I don't have anything. Nothing of mine is mine. It's all yours. If you give me a portion of it and ask for the first part back, then the first part goes to you because you've answered and heard my prayers. You see how in competition those two thoughts are with one another. And he says, do it so that there may be food in my house, so that there may be found there what is required for the work that I have ordained. For what end? Why does he want this food there? For my glory and for your spiritual blessing. Why would anyone wish to restrain the work of the Lord when it only redounds to the blessing of all? As Origen put it, if too little oil is provided for the lamp, the flame will die out. And then look how he puts it. He says, prove me, put me to the test about this matter. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He says, never believe me more 
than you do in this matter. If you do this, this is my promise. And you see here the kindness and the goodness of the Lord. There's kindness here in the fact that he would allow, even invite men and women to put him to the trial. Test me on this matter, he says. Give me the first and see what happens. Oh, the never enough adored depths of God's goodness that he should stoop so low to us as to even challenge us to keep his word. You really think he's not going to keep his word? (laughs) Do we have to be challenged in that way? The assumption often attached to these words is that the Lord is going to make them rich But you have to take it a step further, beloved, and ask, why is he going to bless them? And the answer is that there may be food in my house. Well, why does he want food in his house? For his glory. That's what it's all about, his glory, his honor. God is not the tax man. The Lord's not going to carry on his work off the backs of those who can't afford it. He's not like the king or the government that provides nothing but keeps demanding more of what belongs to others for themselves. He asks only for what is rightfully his and promises a return for it. Do you see how different that is from the taxes of the world? This is the Old Testament equivalent of those words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little of faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or how shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Put first the kingdom of God, the things of God, the righteousness of God, and all these things will be provided for you. He says here, back in Malachi now, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, 
where you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He promises, beloved, that if they put him first, he will rebuke the punishing character of the curse for them. And it's a play on words. The Lord will undermine or corrupt what undermines you, he says. And by this, he will open the cataracts and the floodgates of heaven. And why is he telling them this? So that they will seek to be rich? So that they can become spiritual mercenaries, sanctifying themselves so that they'll become wealthy and independent in this world? Is this what he's asking them to test him about? Clearly not. He's calling on them to obey and be men and women of their word and to see if he will not be a God of his word. If we would have God open his treasury, we must open ours, says T. Moore. It would be a grave error here, beloved, to imagine that this is just a promise of mere temporal profits, which, as we said, can be a burden. This is a promise of blessings, both temporal and spiritual. What they want in temporals or earthly things he will make up in spirituals, joy and peace through believing, as much or more than heart can hold, says Trapp. For them to give, as God had required, out of the first fruits, was to put on display the covenant relationship between the Lord and his people. They showed their love for and their dependence upon him and he demonstrates his love for them and his mercy upon them. And beloved, it's the free will giving to the church for its work that puts on display the covenant relationship between God and his people. It's long been said that you can't outgive the Lord. And that's the point of this text. You cannot outgive the Lord. He's not going to let you outgive him. John Trapp put it this way So liberal a paymaster is God. His rewards are more than bountiful. He will not be overcome by his creature in giving liberally. He's not going to let you outgive him. It's just not going to happen. It's not his nature as God. Now, just some concluding observations here. The budget, which uh, you'll be able to pick up today, will come before the congregation at the corporation meeting on Wednesday evening. I just want to remind you that we need 20% of the membership present for that meeting, but we hope more than 20% will be present. It's an ambitious budget, but please look at it prayerfully, knowing that it's not being cavalierly inflated Rather, consider what you can do to help us meet it so that we can all work together to erase the deficit and end the year in what we call the black. And let's see together what God will do. Abraham is often referred to as our father in the faith. Do you know how else he's been termed in the history of the church? 
over generations, for hundreds of years, the father of tithing. He's been called the father of faith and the father of tithing. Doing it before it was required by the law of Moses. Demonstrating that it was a pre-law ordinance designed for the glory of God and the blessing of his people. This series from this portion of Malachi is not intended to take away from the fact that this is, in so many ways, a generous congregation, a generous group of believers. I don't mean to do that at all. That's especially evident when special offerings are called for. I can't think of a time, a single incident, since I came nearly 20 years ago now, that a special offering has been brought forward and it hasn't been met. But it's also important that we have a regular income for the maintenance of the properties and the support of the staff that arises from those who are members and adherents to the fellowship. So the challenge is this. Please consider making a regular weekly, monthly, or quarterly contribution out of your first fruits to the general account, doing it and knowing that you can't outgive the Lord or be more liberal towards him than he will be towards you. The question may be, well, where is Christ in all of this? And my answer would be where he always is, standing before us and saying that uh, his love is upon us, that where there may be a willful disobedience to his word, forgiveness can be found in him. And where there is a weakness of faith, that strength can be found in him. And inviting us to put our confidence and hope in him. The testimony of the word is that the one who has freely given us his son, will he not freely give us all things. And we know what the answer to that is. Surely, truly. And in that sense, we can give freely and trust the Lord to provide for us according to our needs. Just being faithful in making that first thought of him and acknowledging his grace and mercy and provision in our lives. And then moving forward from there in faith and confidence. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our Redeemer. Lord, we thank you for all those times when we have received all sorts of things at your hand and not thought to acknowledge it or to thank you properly. And we're so thankful we have a Redeemer to cover that offense, Lord. And we pray that you would forgive us for his sake. Lord, I pray now that you would put in the hearts of your people a desire, a, a, a passion to put you to the test and to see, Lord, if you will not bless us as we seek to glorify you. Work in the hearts of each one. Bless the households. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to do the things that you've called us to do 
And Lord, provide for us so that we can do the things that we can't imagine yet, and yet you have for us to do. That Lord, you might be glorified in the testimony and witness of this little portion of the body of Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here who is without hope in Christ himself, I pray, Lord, that they would see here the very gracious, the very loving heart of the God who is calling them and realize that if they give their life to him, that, Lord, you will give them a life that is full of peace and love and mercy. We ask these things, Lord, now in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.